0: So we're kind of not messing around, um, and we'll get to the, te- the context here. But So last week, you, if you were here last week, I I'd, I'd said, like, okay, so this week, anger, next week, sex. And it was after the first gathering, I was standing outside talking to some friends, and one of the guys said, uh, sarcastically, boy, Adam, I'm sure looking forward to that sex talk next week. To which I said, sarcastically, yeah, and I'm really looking forward to taking a position on some, some things. To which he said, no pun intended? <sighs> So, so bad, but we got to try to keep it light here, right? So, so here, here's what we're doing. If you've not been with us, I understand. Like, this is such an uncomfortable topic, and yet it's also such a social topic. And I understand if you're sitting next to your mom right now, that makes it all the more exciting. So, so let me just give the context. I don't think it's maybe as bad as it might feel. That we we started this series way back on, on the Sunday after Easter. And that, that came from me from this experience where somewhere around January, I, I just started working through Matthew left to right. I think I was feeling lots of the same things many of us are feeling of just, it was just such a disruptive season, the election cycle and the pandemic. And I think now I'm starting to just identify as someone who loves to listen to podcasts and someone that loves to listen to read. Even I just got sick of all the opinions and all the thoughts and And there was just something refreshing about opening the text, and I I get it, like even when you open the text, it's filtered through opinions and all of that, but it just, it simplified things. And and what we've been trying to do is just ask this question of who is this Jesus, and not who is he filtered through your tradition or mine, and not who is he based upon your own opinions or your parents' opinions, But, but according to the Gospel writer Matthew, to try to do our level best job of just slowing down and just trying to ask the question, is Jesus still worth following? And for some of you, that's a question that you're asking after a lifetime of following him. And for some of you, it's a question that you're asking and you've never followed him in your life. But what we're trying to do is just look at the story. And what we observed is that the story, it starts with, with Matthew in chapter 1, just by way of review to where we've been, because I think it's important to this context. Is he starts by talking about a God who wants to be with us. And it, it pulls on this, this theme that the Jewish God, part of what makes him unique is that this God, he wanted to be with people. He wanted to share space with people. He was not just constructing some kind of incubator or nursery from which he could then extract souls into heaven, that that's not who this God is. That's often the Greek God, the Platonic God. It's not the Jesus Jewish God, that this God wanted to be with people. And, of course, that got all fouled up. And then in chapter 2, but but really what's going on in chapter 1 is Matthew is then saying the future has come into the present, to once again ignite God's desire to be with us. Which then asks the question in chapter two, what does it look like for God to be with us? And what I love about chapter two, and the further I get from it, the more I enjoy it, is it just, it reminds us that one of the most dangerous things we can do is to determine, to use our circumstances to determine whether or not God is with us. Like, if there's any notion that God's being with us means healthy and wealthy and wise, chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel disproves that because here you have Jesus' parents, that the parents of the Messiah, and no sooner do they receive this invitation that their their life falls apart circumstantially. They have to run for their lives, they have to change their homes, people want to kill them, their very lives result in other people dying. And it's like Matthew is saying, for God to be with you doesn't, it's not always discernible by circumstances, and then in chapter three, we're introduced to John the Baptist. And we're, we're going to push this series all the way up until Advent. But then in November, we're going to start an Advent series. And, and John the Baptist is, is a big piece of Advent because the role he plays in the narrative is, is, is this call to have hope for a future that's, that's present only in God. And listen, I, I think this is one of the biggest struggles of our season. We all know we're in this incredible sociopolitical conversation. It's incredibly complicated, it's it's incredibly divisive, and that there's a progressive left and they've got their worldview and there's a conservative right and they've got their worldview. And I think for me it's refreshing to see that history is cyclical and that what's not new is a God who's begging a people to not attach their hopes to either side but to something that transcends both sides. Which isn't to say that either side doesn't at times have something valid to say, but to say neither should be lost for or confused with God's kingdom movement. And what John serves to remind us of is that God, God has standards. And those standards are very real. He throws wide the doors to, to follow Jesus, and yet God has standards. In chapter four, then, it starts moving to, okay, so what kind of a messiah? And in the same way that a young kid growing up playing quarterback today has any number of heroes to emulate, you could emulate Tom Brady, or you could emulate Patrick Mahomes, or you could emulate Aaron Rodgers, or just about anybody else, young Jewish kids, boys, would have also had stories to pick from. And the question becomes, who will Jesus emulate? Who will he model himself after? Will it be Moses? Will it be Solomon? Will it be Esther? Will it be Miriam? Will it be David? David. And the answer to the question, it seems like Matthew wants us to get, and this comes up over and over and over. I'm in Matthew 9 right now, and it's in there again that Jesus chose what some would call 3rd Isaiah, or what we would call Isaiah 40-55. to And the story in Isaiah 40-55 to is about a God who's looking for a servant, a people who fail to live into that, and a person who goes, okay, I'll do it. And to understand Jesus' story is to understand over and over and over again He does his work through self-giving love. Then we get to Matthew chapter 5, which begins the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this is what we got into last week, it sure seems to me that what Jesus is doing is answering two questions. Who can be good? And what is good? Now, part of the reason why uh, I've always been fascinated by doing a series where you go from beginning to end in a book is you can't avoid the stuff that makes you squirm. Part of my reason for resisting doing that is it maybe it doesn't allow you to talk about stuff that matters. And for me this week, there was just a grace in realizing, like, what are the cultural questions we're asking right now? I mean, do, do they not just boil down as simply to who is good, who can be good, and who is good? And sure, it might be an oversimplification, but, but the conservative right has a very well-developed definition of who is good and who can be good, and the progressive left has a very well-developed definition And I guess, to me, I think it's worth considering, and I hope if you get nothing else from the Sermon on the Mount, that that what you see is Jesus is constantly begging us to transcend that, to see that neither has a monopoly on the question. So what we explored last week is that the Beatitudes, they seem to really speak to, in answer to the question, who can be good? The answer is anybody. Because Jesus is looking at this ragtag, motley crew of people who, by most social metrics, aren't qualified, and he's saying, even you are blessed, and even you are blessed, even you are blessed, despite yourself, in spite of what you've done, you too can live the with God life. To me, it's this reminder, and I certainly feel it right now, like, will there, be a, will there be a viable church in our community in the coming years? I have no doubt that God will be faithful to that. But if I don't want to be it, and if we don't want to be it, then God will grieve that, but he'll just, he'll, he'll raise it up, that, that God consistently finds people who who need grace and want to be beacons of that to their world. And in Matthew 5.20, in my opinion, all of the Sermon on the Mount is viewed through this lens, and I'm indebted to Dallas Wood for this. Jesus says this, "...for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, those are big words, because that's Jesus putting his arm around the best and brightest spiritual authorities, spiritual giants of his day, and going, if you don't do goodness, that's what righteousness means, better than them, yours isn't any good. Which then begs the question, so what is good? Who is good? And that's the question that Jesus gets into then in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we talked about anger. Remember, when we, we just explored this idea that Jesus says that the Pharisees, the scribes, they say the standard is don't murder. And Jesus goes, no, don't. No, but it's really not about the externals. It's about the heart. And there's this Dallas Willard statement that I love that, that, where he says, really the gist of the Sermon on the Mount is, is it's, not, it's not about behavior modification, it's about heart transformation. Then we get into, then, sex, which is tricky. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Like, so, topically, he goes anger, sex, and then next week, we're going to talk about words. I just thought on Father's Day, since us, since us dads are so good at never saying stupid things or hurtful things to our kids, we'll just talk about that next week. But seriously, if you could eliminate anger, sex, and hurtful speech, like, what else is left? See, what Dallas Willard suggests is that these are not, uh, these are not haphazard topics, that we can't really deal with sex until we deal with anger, and we can't really deal with our words until we deal with anger and the way we see the person standing next to us. And yet still, here we arrive. And here's the question, and again, uh, uh, maybe I need to stop saying this, but I just feel like it so speaks to our moment. This, here's the question, and it's the question, if, if you wanted to vet whether or not someone identifies progressive left or conservative right, what better question is there then Are you open and affirming? And here's what I want to do this morning is is not suggest that that question doesn't have value, but to suggest this, what if in asking that question first, we're actually missing other questions that are, in fact, more important questions? Like, what if by starting there, we're, we're, we're missing the deeper heart stuff that Jesus constantly has in mind? You don't have to agree, but let me just, let's just walk through this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Here, here's an important question, and I'm going to argue a question that I think is, maybe should be asked before that other one. Is Jesus anti-sex? Is Jesus' heart towards sexuality that's mostly bad, minus reproduction? Is, is, is Jesus Victorian in that sense? I just heard this morning about a pastor who started talking about sex 20 years ago in a guy's hometown, and he was outed after he did so. Is Jesus anti-sex? Is that, is that his heart behind this? And if, it, if he's not, then what is going on? we'll, we'll Look at the next book. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in, with her in his heart. Now let's deal with a couple of things here. First of all, obviously this is a very gendered kind of statement. It, it's, it's a man lusting after a woman. What's represented is not the opposite or the same. And sure, we can fault Jesus for that. But I do agree with many historians, Andy Stanley being one of them, who he just kind of sarcastically says, every woman in the world should follow Jesus if for no other reason, because no man has ever done more for women in his time than Jesus did. We, we can fault Jesus here for just speaking directly to men, and not do the work of seeing that it's cultural, but there's other things to consider. I heard recently, and this frankly landed, it had an impact on me, it was this suggestion that the idea of consensual sex, what if it's a uniquely Christian idea? In other words, if you look at the scope of human history, good historical study would say what brought it to the floor, what normalized it, were the ethics of Jesus. Prior to Jesus, prior to Christianity, the idea that, that, that sex was consensual for women was almost entirely unheard of. The idea that... that, that sex was consensual for kids, which is an oxymoron, but you know what I mean? Entirely unheard of. Even most men had no say over who their sexual partners were or the extent to which they had to engage. So if we can just kind of deal with that distraction and give Jesus the benefit of the doubt, I think it leads to this other question, and it's not only is Jesus anti-sex, but is Jesus here saying that a 14-year-old boy who looks at somebody else and finds them beautiful is sinning? Poor, poor, poor girl sitting in a coffee shop, and someone walks by, and suddenly there's this thing that happens to her. Is that what Jesus is saying? And I know that might sound patronizing, but I wonder if especially for our kids, our students, if, if it's really important that we get this one right, lest we discredit ourselves. Is Jesus saying that finding someone attractive is immediately sin? Well, not according to the language, and other translations work even harder to make that clear. It's, it's, there's an intent behind it. That there's, there's a desire. The desire to what? And this is where I think we begin to get into the heart of Jesus. What if Jesus is saying is what sin is objectifying another without any consideration for the impact that has on them or even their own humanness and made-in-God's image-ness? I think this is important that we get right, though, because otherwise we send all these discrediting signals. Scott McKnight in his book, Blue Parakeet, which I think every graduating student should read because it's such a good read on... Uh, how do we read the Bible and how do we understand it? Because what Scott McKnight is doing in that book is demonstrating that we have to do culture, we have to see the cultural river. Well, he has an appendix where he kind of more or less bears out his theories. And one of the appendixes, appendixes, is that how you'd say that, in this book is around sex. And what he points out is that in Jesus' day, especially in Jesus' Jewish world, a girl was married shortly after her first menstrual cycle Boys were married, almost all of them, before their teens were up. And even then, the arrangement process started early, which means that that the average person didn't have to go decades, or even a decade, in the midst of raging hormones and not be sexually active. Now, that's not to say that some of these values don't have a place, but it is to say we should maybe have empathy for the 21-year-old college students surrounded with other people with raging hormones, and that at the very least, we're asking them to do something that they didn't have to do in the text, which I think is all the more why it's so important that we get to the heart of what's Jesus saying here. He, he keeps going. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, scholars that I trust would say here what Jesus is doing is he's being funny. He's being sarcastic. He just took a giant shot at the, the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. Why? Well, are we safe to assume that a person with a porn problem who, who plucks their eyes out of their skull has dealt with the heart issue? Are we safe to assume that blind people don't have lust issues? Is it safe to assume that, that, that someone uh, with a porn and masturbation problem who cuts off their hands no longer has said problem? Or is it safe to assume that, that the kind of cliche uh, womanizer or man manizer, whatever, the person who chases people for sex, if they cut off their legs, that they're, that they're okay, that they're good? I mean, taking it to the largest, kind of the most obtuse level, is this mutilated stump of a person that lacks eyes, arms, or legs, do they by default have a good heart? No, Jesus is mocking the notion. What's he mocking? In the same way that he mocked murder as being the chief goal that God has for us, what if he's mocking the not doing as being the chief goal? What if what he's driving at here? is a conversation around sex that, that, that has the other in mind. A conversation around sexuality that's not so me-based. There's a guy, A.J. Swoboda, who's written this incredible book called After Doubt. We read it as a staff. It's, I think it's, it's definitely the best book I've read in, in 2021. And he talks about vasopressin. Now, those of you in the medical field are probably familiar with this. I just learned about it in this book. Vasopressin is a chemical that your brain releases in several different circumstances. One of them is, is while having sex. Your, your brain releases vasopressin, and what neuroscience is now telling us is that what vasopressin does is it, it, it creates bonding, it creates relationship. It's what causes two people to want to be for each other, to die for each other, to share life together. The same neuroscience shares or demonstrates that with every new sexual partner, and I would dare say virtual or actual, what happens is you have fewer and fewer receptors of vasopressin. In fact, what they've proven now through the science is you can get to the point where your brain lacks the ability to actually absorb it. Now, what impact might that have on the sexual person? How does that change? what exactly sex is all about, and and how might that give caution to, I think the question we're asking here is of what value is constraint? If if one of the questions I think we need to ask before the big question is, is Jesus anti-sex? I wonder if the other one is just a conversation around, like, is there a value to some sexual constraint? And if so, what are those? Because frankly, I feel like it'd be easier to disagree if we could at least agree like there is some. What, what, of what value is it? And here Jesus isn't picking on sex, is he? Look at your own life. Some of your favorite things, some of the most life-giving parts. Doesn't it still require you take a good glass of wine or a nice meal, even exercise? We know that constraint, that boundaries is a very important thing. What's the value of constraint? And what if, if we're not careful, the whole conversation implies that there there are none. None are important. Jesus Jesus keeps going. It's also been said, whoever divorces his wife, let let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now I understand, this one cuts deep for many of you. What's going on here? Well, in Jesus' day, the two celebrity rabbis were a guy named Hillel and and a guy named Shammai. And Rabbi Hillel, his His, frankly, and again, this just shows me it's all cyclical, he he was very leftist, if you will. Hillel's point of view was that a man could divorce his wife if she burnt his toast. That was the actual example. Shammai was of a much different persuasion. Shammai was way over here on the other side, and his opinion was, no, 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 there's got to be a really big reason, like, like something like sexual unfaithfulness. Now, is Jesus weighing in and is he agreeing with Shammai, or is he, again, pushing the conversation further, deeper, more nuanced? Because he continues, but I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Context is everything here again. What we know about this culture, especially the Greek-Roman culture, is that the marriages were, they were trophies. I'm reading this book right now by a guy named Tom Holland about the Caesars and I had no idea... How much jockeying happened among wives, among Caesars and wannabe Caesars and nephews and sons of Caesars, that there was this, sometimes the Caesar would command a son to divorce one woman and marry another woman, all for the sake of him kind of ascending to his position. Some of you have been through this very difficult thing in our culture called annulment. And let me be clear, I have a lot of respect for for Catholic faith tradition. It's this process by which they've tried to honor what Jesus is saying here. And then the friends that I have who have been through this, it's this very difficult thing because essentially it's a process by which they, they just call into question whether or not you ever were married. It's a type of thing that tends to work out really good for one person and is really hurtful for the other. It's all about, like, how do we step through these different obstacles and still get what we want? But what's Jesus getting at here? Well, in some sense, it's no different than the junior high thing dating her, wanna be with her, and so move to her before having left her. Very painful, very difficult. Does it mean that you should live in perpetual shame if you've done that? It's not the Jesus that, that I know. What's the heart issue here? What's the heart issue around attraction and sex and gender and all that? Isn't it a Jesus who's begging us to consider the other, the humanness of the other. The the, the God-madeness of the other. What happens if we reframe the conversation, if we transcend the conversation and go, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if, first of all, we've got to work through why and what's the goal? Then maybe at times we can more easily disagree on on outcomes and expressions. Listen, I understand for some of you this is a very abstract conversation. It's... It's close to you because you have a Facebook account. But you're not dealing with gender dysphoria, you're, you're not dealing with same-sex attraction. And for others of you, it's, it's not abstract at all. You're dealing with it, someone you love is dealing with it. And I think, I think it's really, really important to point out that, that on the issue of sexual misunderstanding and shame, I would dare say nobody in the history of the world would have more empathy for that than Jesus. Why? Because what's his story? Well, his story was he got to go to preschool and tell his friends that his mom was a virgin. And there's hints in the gospel of how beat up and abused he was because of that fact. There's hints in the gospel that she was ridiculed Mary for the rest of her life. Imagine Joseph and what he went through. Imagine Jesus, what he went through. In fact, some people, they point out that the gospel of Matthew is the momser gospel because Matthew is sympathetic to momzers. What's a momser? It's the Hebrew word for Bastard. That was Jesus' story. We see in his public ministry life, Jesus often interacted with people in the midst of sexual things, and he was always compassionate and gracious. I think it's really important that we get this one right, and that is to the extent to which you've been treated poorly or abused in the name of Jesus because of a sexual conversation, then I would dare say that wasn't God because we have the Christ and he didn't do it that way. But in the other sense, I think I'm wrong. I I think that it's not an abstract conversation for any of us. It's very personal for all of us. Jesus is here getting to a heart issue. Maybe you have a porn addiction. Maybe you've got some stuff you need to work through. And let me just say, we've got some people around here who have done the work and they can help if you're willing to out yourself and I can get you their information and names. But there's also deeper heart stuff. Like, like, name an unattractive franchise quarterback in the NFL. Like, we have a cultural favor towards beauty. And I wonder if that's also a part of this conversation. Not, not just whether or not you have some kind of an addiction, but, but have you done the heart work that sees everybody as an image bearer of God? And, and I don't know about you, I'm glad that I've got decades to try to get there. So here's what we know is that, that sex is a gift and it can create some of the greatest pains that we'll experience in life. It's something to be stewarded, it's something that needs boundaries, which often means we need healthy relationships to help us through that. So I'm gonna, we're going to give you a chance to take communion and listen, we, we, we do this, we've been doing this every week. I think this morning it's particularly important to remind ourselves that within many traditions, you take really seriously to, to go through a process of like, repentance and inviting God to search you before you do so. Even in the Catholic tradition, they would, uh, the, the, those who take it most seriously would, would never think to take communion without doing confession first. And I, I'm not suggesting that anybody needs to like rub their knuckles down the cheese grater here, but maybe just to create space to go, okay, God, there's the big picture one, the social one, the Facebook one, but what if there's also the you one? and to just invite God and to nudge in you on areas where, where this whole topic would be personal because I do think there's some wisdom to real revival and real renewal. It doesn't start with banners and movements. It starts with individuals inviting God uh, to make them whole. So let me pray, and we'll just give you some space to sing and grab communion elements if you'd like to. God, Lord, you know better than us that this, this big cultural question is it's looming, in some ways it's empowering, in other ways it's suffocating. Frankly, it's, it's, it's terrifying at times. And God, I'm thankful that we have a model of someone who was always compassionate, always is compassionate. But also, Lord, that, that you are the God that transcends, that you are the God that always pushes stuff deeper, uh, that you're not the God of the Pharisees and the scribes who were concerned about looking the part, but to make us whole inside out, and that would be my prayer, Lord. Uh, that, that the extent to which we're salt and light in our community and to one another, that that would start with our own stuff, uh, which wouldn't require that we're perfect, just that we're engaged with you, doing the work of confession and repentance and, and inviting your growth. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.